The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. <coughs> Good morning, everyone. So I hope you are ready for the day's uh, suttas, uh, that you are well rested. <laughs> it's interesting how you... It matters a lot how you feel on the day, your ability to be mindful, your ability to understand, uh, yeah, whatever it is that you're focusing on. It really depends on having a good night's sleep and all of these things. Uh, so we are very fortunate because uh, the only residential members of this retreat is Ajahn Isharna myself. Everyone else has to travel. Yeah, so we are, we are very lucky in that sense. So hopefully in the future we will have a retreat center. Yeah, in Newbury, they're building things up. Uh, that's really cool. I've seen the drawings. It looks really, it looks like it's going to be really nice. So, what a wonderful thing that is. So, anyway, let us come back to the uh, suttas. And um, we have been looking at this marvelous uh, gradual training. And we are dealing with the Indriya Sangvara Sila, the uh, ethics of sense restraint, if you like. We call this call it usually sense restraint in, in English. And we had looked at how this works in regard to the eye, the eye being the most important of the senses. It's fascinating how you can see here in the Pali how the eye comes first. Yeah, And, and I wonder whether the, that is because the Buddha realize that the eye is the most powerful of the senses. Maybe that is a, is a reason for that. Uh, I'm not sure. The body comes last. I'm not sure why that is the case, because the body is obviously quite uh, important as well. Uh, so there is a... and not entirely sure for this, why the sequence is the way it is, but anyway, it doesn't really matter so much. All the five... all the six senses are there. Buddhism, we have six senses. The rest of the world has five senses. Uh, <laughs> So let's just uh, <coughs> continue with the other senses. Uh, so they restrain the eye when they hear a sound with their ears, uh, when they smell an odor with their nose, uh, when they taste a flavor with the tongue, uh, when they feel a touch with the body, uh, when they know a thought with their mind, uh, yeah? thought or uh, any kind of thing, any mental phenomena really, then again, it's the same idea. Yeah? That they don't get caught up in the features and details. Uh, if the faculty of mind were left unrestrained, bad, unskillful qualities of desire and aversion would become overwhelming. Yeah? For this reason, they practice restraint, practice protecting the faculty of mind, achieving its restraint. So uh, it's not just the five senses, it's the mind as well. And the reason for that is because the mind also takes the objects yeah, of the senses. So in the mind you see things, you hear things. Uh, and uh, all of these things, so that the mind also, sometimes you're just fantasizing about things and the aversion and desires arise in the mind, even though you're just fantasizing about things. Uh, it's a mental phenomena, but it's related to the senses. It is still sensory desire and sensory aversion that you get through the mind. Uh, 
this does not mean the higher kind of minds. Yeah, in Buddhism we talk about the adhicitta, the higher mind. That is about samadhi. That is about the pleasures that have to do with dhamma. Yeah, these are the positive kind of happinesses. Uh, and this does not refer to that. Uh, that is a very important point. Uh, this only refers to those phenomena that has to do with the five relay to the five senses, where the mind is involved with the five senses. Uh, you don't have to restrain the mind when it comes to the pity and happiness of uh, you know, the jhanas, etc. Uh, that is not really a problem. Uh, um, yeah, so this really refers only to the restraint in regard to the five senses. Uh, most, yeah. So uh, uh, there, uh, that is really it about sense restraint. Uh, and uh, this, so everything we said yesterday applies to all of the six senses. Uh, and then he ends off this paragraph when they have this noble. Uh, sense restraint, they experienced an unsullied bliss inside themselves. Yeah, unsullied bliss, sounds good doesn't it? You want to restrain your senses now? <laughs> it, restraint of senses sounds like dukkha, you have to restrain, you have to be wise, you have to really try harder. But the outcome is very positive. Yeah, You get to have the happiness coming from uh, living well, from being kind, from living a moral life, and on top of that you restrain yourself so that that happiness you get is not sullied by the negative mind states. Even if you're kind externally, if you have aversion and desires, it uh, reduces your ability to feel that happiness uh, because it is mixed up yeah, with these negative mind states. Uh, so it is unsullied, it's not, it is not unmixed with uh, the happiness and joy that ideally should come from living well. Uh, this is why it is said to be unsullied. So uh, we reduce the defilements, uh, and that increases the uh, bliss. Every stage of the path is happiness. One stage leading to more happiness. Every stage of the path leading to the next one. Happiness leading to happiness. Uh, happiness being the cause for more happiness. Uh, wonderful. Yeah, we. I don't know, it's just really really great. The more you read the suttas, you realize that there's a lot of emphasis on happiness in the suttas, on joy, on all of these kind of things. And um, the reason why there is the emphasis on dukkha, on suffering in the Four Noble Truths, uh, uh, is because that is the highest kind of expression of the Dhamma. But in reality, the way we experience the Dhamma is as happiness. Yeah, Lots of joy, lots of positive things. Uh, but the idea of dukkha that you find in the Four Noble Truths is a, it's kind of the, from the highest standpoint, is the standpoint of the Noble Ones, of the Buddha and all of that. Uh, and that's why the talk. So we should, sometimes we need to be careful how you, you have to, when we, when you teach Buddhism, we have to ensure that we get both sides of the coin, both the dukkha side and the sukkha side. If you only talk about the dukkha, we're talking from a too high a standpoint uh, and people won't really understand what is going on. Uh, only really the noble ones can understand that fully. So uh, for ordinary people, actually, it feels like a lot of happiness. So, uh, what next? Now, I was going to go to another page, but maybe not. Maybe I'll stay with the same page, actually. I think we'll stay with the same page a little bit further uh, uh, before we move on to this, this little, these other suttas that are indicated by the number three uh, but let's look at Sati Sampajanya first of all. Uh, 
And uh, the reason for that is because it is very closely related to the idea of sense restraint. Uh, these things really go together. Uh, and this is a very important point, uh, because as I mentioned yesterday, this particular paragraph right there, yeah, this starts with they act with situational awareness it's, with all of these things. Uh, it is also found inside the Satipatthana Sutta. So it is found here. It is also found inside Satipatthana. Now, the uh, this this is kind of interesting. Why does it seem to appear in two different places? It appears in the gradual training as part of right effort. Then it appears in Satipatthana as part of right mindfulness. What is going on there? Now, if you know the suttas quite well, if you have read them backwards and forwards and upside down and right side up, whatever, like some of us have, then uh, you will know that the, the idea of sati sampajanya and satipatthana sati, they are found together in many suttas. And whenever they are found together, sati sampajanya always comes first, satipatthana comes afterwards. So if one comes first and the other one comes afterwards, how can Satyasambhajanya be included in Satipatthana? How is that possible? What is going on there? And what is going on, and this has been explained very well by those people who have studied these suttas in detail, who have done the comparative studies, I mentioned this yesterday already, is that actually the idea of Satyasambhajanya inside the Satipatthana Sutta is a later addition. It doesn't really belong there. It belongs earlier on the path. It belongs really as part of sensory strength. Yeah? How to keep the mind clear and even and balanced to make it ready for Satipatthana practice. It is a preliminary kind of idea. And then things start to come together very nicely how this path actually works. And instead of Satipatthana being about mindfulness in daily life, Satipatthana is about meditation proper. So when you sit down, so when you watch your breath, that is what Satipatthana really is about. This changes the way we think about Satipatthana practice. It is not the sort of thing that you walk around in daily life, you're aware of what you're doing and these kind of things. No, in daily life what we do is we are aware of the defilements. We are aware of the problems that arise so as to purify the mind, to make it ready for meditation. Yeah, so there's a slightly different emphasis. And it means that instead of just being aware, walking around here doing this, kind of being mindful, we have a very specific reason for our mindfulness. It's not called Satipatthana yet. It's called a preliminary mindfulness that allows us to keep the purity, allows us to reduce the defilements. And that's why it is here, and that's why it is an extension of the uh, restraint of the senses, uh, the Indriya, Sangvara, Sila, Satisampajanya, working together in this way. Uh. So this, I don't, I'm, I'm sure many of you will know what I'm talking about because you have heard me talk about these things before. Some of you may find this a bit mysterious, what it is I'm saying. Uh, and if you do, it's okay, don't worry too much about it. Uh, I'm just you know, trying to bring out things that are not normally considered uh, when people consider these trainings. Uh, and um, so let, let's now have a look at what it means then. What does Hattisampajanya mean? If it is about sense restraint, is if, it, if, if it is about daily activities, well, what exactly does it refer to? Uh, so I'll just read it out again. This is again uh, Bhantasudhato's translation. They act with... Uh, Situational awareness. This is Sati Sampajanya. When going out and coming back. 
when looking ahead and aside, when bending and extending the limbs, when bearing the outer robe, bowl and robe, when eating, drinking, chewing and tasting, when urinating and defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, waking, speaking and keeping silent. So that is the standard passage on Sati Sampajanya. So um, you will notice here that this is a, that the way that Bhante uh, Sujato translates Sati Sampajanya is situational awareness, which is quite unusual. Usually you will hear translations such as clear comprehension or maybe full awareness. These are kind of the usual translations. But uh, uh, here is a different one. So why does he translate in this way? And the reason is because it is awareness about the situation you are in, yeah? understanding the situation you are in, whether you are reacting to that situation appropriately, whether you are using it in a way that is conducive to the practice, and all of these kind of things. If we translate it as a full awareness, then it fits better in Satipatthana Sutta. It fits better with with meditation and it fits with uh, ordinary life. Yeah? So I think this is actually quite a nice translation. It gives out a different angle on the idea of Sati Sampajanya, awareness of your situations. It's a bit unusual. When I first heard him say it, I thought, what? What are you talking about, situational awareness? But then I, I kind of get used to it. It's weird how very often we reject things immediately because we're not used to the idea. We think, yeah, no, he don't, they don't know what they're talking about. This is nonsense. But after I think, wait a minute, maybe they have a point. Yeah, at least that's how it is with me. I tend to reject things out of hand. I'm really kind of harsh in that way. And after I think, maybe I'm just being stupid. Maybe I should think about this more carefully. I think this is kind of a natural human tendency. Yeah, When something is new, we don't want to take on anything new because it's always a hassle to have to think about things and reflect on them. But I think this is an interesting one. So you have awareness about the situation and all of these things are really situations. Yeah, Going out and coming back. What does that refer to? Well, it re- usually refers to monastics going out on arms round, coming back from arms round, uh, looking ahead. Uh, yeah? Are they going to are they going to give some food or not? Uh, okay, so you look ahead. If they're not, okay, you look the other way. Because yeah? you have to be aware of what's happening, right? Because uh, uh, bending and extending your limbs, kind of putting out your arms ball, put, taking it back in again, uh, bearing your outer robe and ball and robes. Yeah? Very, this is all about what monastics do. And this is what they do in life outside of meditation. And then you have to have situational awareness. What does that mean? What are we supposed to do? And this, of course, also relates to lay people. What exactly is going on here? What does it mean? Does it mean that you just know that you're walking? I mean, what's the point of that? Of course you know that you're walking. You know you are doing whatever. And the point is that we want to avoid defilements arising in the mind. Am I doing it for the right reason? Why am I going into the village? Is it to you know, look at all the beautiful, pretty girls? <laughs> or is it to receive the alms food for the day? Or, or whatever else you find. Is it going to look at all the commercials or all the, oh, I wonder what movies are going on in the cinema. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, All of this sensual indulgence that people kind of indulge in, that's not why you go in. You have awareness of the purpose and the reason for why you go into the, the suitability of what you're doing for the um, 
practice of the path, is it going to be helpful for the path or is it going to detract from the path? Uh, this is what this is about. Uh, this is how it is defined in the commentary. There's nothing the commentaries have got it exactly right. Uh, so this is an extension of the sense restraint, right? Uh, you know that you're doing the right thing. You know you're doing things uh, that will lead to that even mind, uh, not the mind that is excited by all kind of pleasures of the world. Uh, or gets angry, oh, oh, that person, I remember that person from Leila, I really don't like them, and whatever happens, yeah? So this is what this is about, and it kind of fits in very, very well with the, the, the other paragraph, once you see this. Uh, so all of these things, you do it for the right reasons, yeah? Not, not for some dodgy reason, uh, bearing your outer robe and bowl uh, in, the, in an appropriate way, you do it for the reason of modesty, for the reason of getting out of the cold or the heat, yeah, having a suitable bowl to receive alms, but things are suitable for that situation of being a monastic. Yeah. And you can do the same in lay life as well, yeah, to some extent. The things that you do, why do you do them? Do they end up triggering a lot of defilements or not? So, you know, you have a certain awareness of why you do things. And so this is applicable everywhere. Eating, drinking, Chewing and tasting, in other words, eating and drinking. Yeah. Do you do it for the right reason? Yeah, this is a kind of, yeah, this is um, an obvious one. So is it to eat too much or drink too much? Uh, and we have going to the toilet. Uh, we have full awareness of going to the toilet. Uh, I've always been a bit unsure about why that is mentioned specifically, because it kind of seems like, okay, you've got to go, you've got to go, and that's really end of end of it, but uh, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's mentioned there for some reason. Uh, why is it there? Is it... Uh-huh. Is it? Okay. Gee, uh, okay. I have a... Okay, maybe. Maybe you're right. Okay, anyway, let's just leave that one aside then. Uh, someone had a good a good explanation for that once, I think, but I can't remember now what that was again. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. And then the last one, which maybe is, which of course, very interesting. You have situational awareness about walking, standing, uh, sitting, okay, sleeping. Yeah. Now this is a very interesting one. How can you have situational awareness about sleeping? Yeah. What What does it mean to when sleeping? How can you have situational awareness when sleeping? Yeah. And this is where I disagree with the translation. I think the translation is missing something. Translation isn't quite right. And the uh, grammar of the sentence here, really, what it should be, in my opinion, I never heard anyone else suggesting this, but this is, to me, the obvious solution, is actually you don't have situational when you do these things. You have situational awareness about these things, concerning these things. You have situational awareness concerning sleep. Yeah, That's very different. It means that you know how much you should sleep. How little, not sleeping too little, not sleeping too much. Sleeping in a way whereby you sleep properly, all of these kind of things. Then this kind of thing makes really good sense. Yeah, The only way you would be able to know that is you have to know a bit of polygrammar. So this is why where I come in handy, because I know a bit of polygrammar. Not so many people are know that so that's kind of uh, that is very useful sometimes uh, but it's very rare most of the time you can just rely on the english one of those rare situations and then waking is not really waking it's about being awake yeah situation when it's about being awake and sleeping there are two sides of the same coin 
And then, of course, lastly, situational awareness about speaking and keeping silent, uh, knowing when to speak, knowing when to keep silent. And uh, that is obviously an important one, and it kind of fits in nicely with the idea of right speech that we looked at before. Uh, so that is uh, situational awareness for you. Uh, being aware in daily life, uh, knowing why you are doing things, the purpose, uh, is it suitable for the path? Is it going to be very disturbing for your mind? It's nice, nice reflection, yeah, and to, to think about. Uh. Then uh, we'll just read one more paragraph before we return to the uh, at little footnote three. Uh, then it says, when, yeah, actually, let's leave it there. This is good enough. We'll come back to that paragraph afterwards. Uh, let's go to number three now, the um, section three or whatever you want to call it. Uh, on page 15. <clears throat> so now we come to a little sutta that I very often read out because I think it's very interesting and very different again from how meditation is often taught or the path is often taught. Uh, power is a bala, and so these are the two balas, and there are mendicants, monastics, these two powers. What to? The power of reflection, pati sankana bala, and the power of development, the bhavana bala. And what mendicants are is the power of reflection. It's when someone reflects bad conduct of the body, speech, and mind has a bad and painful result in both this life and the next. Reflecting like this, they give up bad conduct by way of body, speech, and mind, and develop good conduct by way of body, speech, and mind, keeping themselves pure. This is called the power of reflection. And then comes the power of development in a second. That's meditation practice. Yeah. So um, this is the power of reflection. And what is so interesting about this, it is, what is very powerful about this, is that the way to overcome the bad conduct, yeah, you see here, it is not really about using willpower. It is not just about going by faith or anything like that. It is about reflecting about things in the right way. And if you understand things in the right way, it means having right view. It means seeing things in the same way as the Buddha saw things. Yeah, You understand the world in the right way. It means understanding the downside of bad conduct. That's exactly what the Buddha says here, understanding the downside. Yeah, It leads to bad results in this life and future life. What does bad result mean? It means dukkha, suffering. It means a suffering right here and right now. It means the suffering in the future. But not just that, it also bad results in terms of Dhamma practice. It holds you back. It stops you from moving forward on the path. Yeah, This is one of the worst things. The Buddha says, it, he calls it Panya Nirodika. It makes wisdom cease. Yeah, The end of wisdom is what happens when you kind of have these defilements and negative things happening. It leads you away from Nibbana, Nibbana Asang, Anibbana, Nibbana Asangvattanika, something like that. 
it leads to all kind of problems. So this is, these things are very problematic. So you reflect on these things in the right way. And as you reflect on these things in the right way, you start to want to become, do, not do the bad things because you understand it's dangerous. Right view, right view is the source of good conduct. Right view is the source of mental purity, thinking in the right way, perceiving the world in the right way, all of these things. It's the, from the reflection, thinking about it, yeah, in, 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 the, in line with how the Buddha thought about it. People ask, how do you think, how do you reflect? Well, you just, you take from your daily experience and you, you see what happens when you do bad things. How do you feel about yourself? What are the results in the long run in your relationship with other people? All of these kind of things. And it's bleeding obvious <laughs> that these have negative consequences. You also take on board from the Buddha on faith some of these things. It has bad consequences in the future life. Okay, you may not know that, but it's kind of okay. You accept that. So you use your own experience, you use your faith in the Buddha, you reflect on these things, you think about some of the similes the Buddha is using to talk about the dangers of the sensory world. Yeah? And you gradually you start, your mind kind of moves in that direction. People often use, ask, how do we reflect? And this is how you, how you do it. Just by listening to the suttas, this is a kind of reflection. Yeah? You have no choice but to reflect. You have no choice but being brainwashed. This is what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good brainwashing, right? It's the best kind of brainwashing. You gotta, you, you get brainwashed anyway. Might as well get brainwashed with something good uh, rather than something evil and bad. Uh, but brainwashing is part for the course. If there is no self, then everything is brainwashing here. Uh, that's just what it is. It's your condition. That's the same thing as brainwashing. It's exactly the same thing here. Yeah. So hooray for the Buddha's brainwashing! Yay, the Buddha is the best, the best brainwasher. <laughs> so anyway. So you reflect when it comes to the mind as well. Yeah, how we deal with the mental defilements, how we deal with purifying the mind, that too comes from reflection. And again, I've been saying all the time that we get away from the willpower, we go on to the wisdom power. And here, lo and behold, the Buddha is saying just that. Reflection is wisdom power. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. We use our wisdom. We use the right view. We use the suit as, as the guide. We try to understand what is going on. We understand connections between things. Everything is about causality. Do bad stuff, bad things happen. And it's not just about karma. I do bad in this life. I do it in future life. As the Buddha says right here, it is happens right in this life. It has bad consequences. So we try to see that more clearly. And this is what it's about. And the, when you see these things, uh, when you understand, when you use that power of reflection, it makes it so much easier to change your mental habits uh, because you know this is dangerous. Uh, a lot of the time people kind of know they shouldn't get angry. So we sort of know that because we know the bad consequences to some extent. Uh, but it's not all that clear to us. Yeah, sometimes it's good to get, you know, your kids are misbehaving. They need to be told off sometimes, right? Uh, that kind of thing. So there's always, or sometimes you have to be self-right, you have to do the, the right thing. Yeah, we're going to solve all the problems in the world. Sometimes anger gives you the energy to solve things in the world. And that's kind of arguments that kind of blurs the lines. Yeah, and you think that anger is sometimes okay. And then, of course, it turns out you use it at all kind of wrong times as well. And even if you should use it at those times, even that is highly questionable. 
So we need to have a very conscious relationship with these problems. So the more conscious we are about it, the more clear we are that these things are problematic. It leads to long-term spiritual damage for ourselves and others. It doesn't really encourage people in the right way. Yeah, Love and kindness, caring is always the most powerful thing. That is when people listen to you. Who do you listen to? Do you listen to a teacher who is really angry and tells you off? Or do you listen to a teacher who tends to be kind? You know, I know who I listen to. <laughs> I listen to the Buddha because the Buddha comes across as someone very kind. I listen to Ajahn Brahm because Ajahn Brahm never tells me off. Yeah, he doesn't really. He never, even when I do dodgy things, he doesn't say what. You get your act together. He never tells you off. He says, "Oh yeah, it's all right. Whatever. You know, just carry on." Um, <laughs> that's what he says. And actually, what that means is that you take responsibility for yourself because you know, jeepers, I, you know, no one is telling me, oh, okay, I better take responsibility for my own life. And that's what happens. You don't need to be told off. You know what is right and wrong. And sometimes when you know, actually your ability to change things becomes more powerful because they're coming from you. You're not doing it because you're afraid of some kind of external person who's going to tell you off if you do the wrong thing. So I don't think anger really ever works. Telling off never really works. Yeah, it is kindness always works in all situations. Initially, people may take advantage of it only for a short time. And then they start thinking, jeepers, I had to take responsibility for myself. And then you do that, and you become able to do that precisely because you are treated with kindness. So you, reflection, thinking, what is going on here, using the words of the Buddha, all of these things, this is what is by, meant by reflection. So often people think that the way we overcome defilements is by meditation. That's what people think. Yeah, I meditate, that makes me overcome defilements. But actually, that's not what the Buddha says here. The Buddha says that the way we overcome defilements, both mentally and in our everyday life, is by reflecting about it. This is kind of the body, speech, and mind. Yeah? There is some extent to which you overcome defilements in meditation, but they are very refined defilements. There are defilements that are, you almost don't see. Yeah, there are the kind of invisible things that are hindering you to go even deeper. But uh, a lot of the ordinary defilements of the mind, uh, we don't overcome by meditation, you overcome by reflection. Uh, if you sit down and you have a lot of things going on in your mind, uh, um, ill will or interests in the world, you're going to solve all the problems in the world before, you, before your mind becomes peaceful. Uh, you're never going to be peaceful, right? If you're going to solve all the problems in the world. But sometimes we want to solve all the problems in our life or whatever. And this is part of that sensory realm. This is actually an aspect of sensual thought. I, sometimes people think sensual thought just means fantasizing about food or something. But no, sensual thought is this whole realm of resolving problems in the world, of figuring out how you're going to deal with your family issues or work or whatever. Yeah, Everything in that realm, it's massive and enormous. All of that is part of the sensual realm. So you need to think about that. Why am I interested in these things? Yeah, if, you have, if you're too busy with those things, you just can't meditate. Sort it out first, then meditate. Because otherwise you're going to be wasting your time and you're not going to enjoy your meditation practice. So sit back and just wait. Okay, why am I thinking about all of this stuff? Okay, let it go for a while. Let me think about it for a while. Yeah, and then after a while it kind of becomes boring and you use the Buddha's reflection a little bit to overcome it. 
and you know okay now it's time to do some meditation practice because my mind is at least reasonably clear yeah and that's kind of what it is about so the power of reflection underestimated in buddhism and um, yes patti sankhana bala all right so what mendicance is the power of development it is when a mendicant develops the awakening factor of mindfulness investigation of principles energy rapture tranquility immersion immersion stillness and equanimity which rely on seclusion fading away cessation and ripen as letting go this is called the power of development these are the two powers two powers is enough yeah and that's all you require to go all the way to the end of the path the second power here is meditation practice um, these are the seven factors of awakening and the seven factors of awakening are equivalent to the last two factors of the noble eightfold path sammasati plus sammasamadhi combined into these seven factors of awakening the seven factor of awakening can be considered as an expansion of the last the last two factors of the path it's a subdivision of what happens as you go from sati to the highest samadhi yeah that path of practice between those two and it's yeah so we start off with mindfulness and you go through all of these beautiful things the energy the rapture tranquility then comes the samadhi the immersion and then the equanimity the highest kind of samadhi and stillness at the very end there so this is where this is called the power of development this is meditation practice bhavana is kind of the uh, bhavana the word bhavana is used in many different ways in the suttas and you can call this is what you would call samadhi bhavana and then of course you have what chitta bhavana the development of the mind the chitta and samadhi are very closely related to each other in the suttas but of course you can have more preliminary kinds of bhavana but this is here is about meditation practice so what is this process that we're going through what does it mean to develop the seven factors of awakening what exactly is going on here well first of all we have already abandoned most of the defilements through being wise through reflecting in the right way you you cannot it's very hard to abandon all defilements that way because we are so enmeshed in the sensory world there's going to be little defilements left things that often you cannot even see so the process of meditation is to abandon those last defilements yeah defilements of the restlessness of the mind the mind not being fully bright because the is bound to be a reduction in energy when we always impacted by the world around us last attachments to the body yeah this is what satipatthana practice is about overcoming the last attachments to the body and the five senses these are just attachments to these things they're not even desires in an ordinary sense yeah so they're very profound things and maybe some overcoming the last doubt what actually is really wholesome you haven't really still not discovered fully what the deepest state of wholesome mind is like you only really know the full idea of wholesomeness once you enter a deep state of samadhi that's when you get to have overcoming doubt completely yeah this is what happens when you get to a jhana state the doubt is gone because all the five hindrances are gone so this is uh, 
what happens in this process, the overcoming of the rem uh, remains of the defilements. Uh, this is what this is about, this process of development. Uh, and if you look at this process, it's very similar to what we I talked about before, the dependent liberation. I mentioned that before, where you start with sila, from sila comes non-remorse, from non-remorse comes pamudra, the gladness of the mind, from the pamudra comes the piti, the rapture, from the piti comes the pasadi, tranquility from the pasadi comes the sukha, from the sukha comes the samadhi. This is almost exactly very close parallel. I think I showed this on the retreat earlier on, the parallels between these things. And then you look at the Anapanasati Sutta and you look at the, the various stages of mindfulness of breathing, Anapanasati, and still you see exactly a very strong parallel between what you're seeing here. So this is like fundamental Buddhism, yeah? absolutely fundamental Buddhism. You see it again and again in the suttas, in different contexts, in different ways. Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, seven factors of awakening here. Dependent liberation, same process that happens. This is the process how you experience meditation internally. It's a psychological development that happens during meditation practice. So what exactly is that psychological development? Let's have a quick look at these things, even though it's a bit early still. We're supposed to come to my meditation later on. Nevertheless, because the seven factors of awakening are here, let's just discuss them briefly because they are pretty cool. They are important. So um, it starts off by developing the awakening factor of mindfulness. What is that? What does that mean? Well, it means Satipatthana practice. We're going to have a look at the Satipatthana Sutta later on. What does Satipatthana practice mean? Well, essentially, it means mindfulness of breathing here. So what we're doing here is you're watching your breath. That's the first one. Awakening factor of mindfulness means basically watching the breath. It can mean a little bit more than that. It can mean doing body contemplation to overcome the body a little bit, like the 31 parts of the body. Yeah, But... Um, Essentially, it is uh, about watching the breath. That's what it, what it is is about, and also perhaps, yeah, watching the breath. Really, that's what it comes comes down to. It doesn't have to be that. There are other ways of doing awakening factor of mindfulness. One thing that is mentioned in the suttas is reflecting on the dhamma, yeah, that you have learned. Reflecting on the dhamma can give rise to joy. Yeah, Dhammanusati, one of the factors that gives rise to joy in the suttas. Dhammanusati, recollection of the Dhamma. So just remember, and that can mean just uh, con contemplating the teachings of the Buddha and just thinking, wow, this is such marvelous stuff. Yeah, It's interesting how in life we tend to find joy in the wrong kind of things and not joy. in the th We, th we find joy in things that don't actually bring much happiness. And then we don't find joy in those things that actually do bring a lot of happiness. Yeah, so we find, yeah, I got a promotion at work. Whoa, so happy. Yeah, I find myself a new life partner. Yay, this is such a good relationship. Wow, I'm so lucky to find a partner like this. But when you come across the Buddhist teachings, like, oh, yawn. Yeah, okay, poof, <laughs> more of the same. <laughs> You know, it's something that's true, right? And it's because we don't really understand where happiness lies. If we understood that this is where you find happiness rather than in a job promotion or in a new partner in life, 
then we will find much more happiness in this than we ever would find in those other things. But it's because we don't really see clearly. That's why we get it the wrong way around. But it shows you how much potential there is for happiness and joy by understanding the Dhamma correctly. If you really understand the Dhamma, yeah, it leads to these kind of things. So that's the Dhamma Nusati when done in the right way. Of course, that's also related to Buddha Nusati because the Buddha is the one who started the whole thing. So if you understand the Dhamma, you understand the Buddha. If you understand the Buddha and Dhamma, you understand the Sangha. Yeah. Sometimes the idea with Sangha is a the good thing about Sangha is more tangible, it's more present. Yeah, If you see some very inspiring person, uh, usually a monastic, doesn't have to be, can be lay person as well, because sometimes lay people can be very inspiring. Uh, uh, but when you see that, you kind of get in touch with the Dhamma a little bit. Uh, it's a living example. That's kind of the advantage of the Sangha. The Buddha is a bit more remote, but if you can get into the idea of the Buddha, it's even more powerful. Uh, so this is the this is the. Um, Mindfulness, awakening factor of mindfulness, yeah, basically means giving rise to clarity of mind, yeah, maybe with some joy coming up and these kind of things. Uh, that's what it means. It doesn't even have to be in these ways. Arguably, I would say the awakening factor of mindfulness can also be things like uh, chaganusati and silanusati, remembering your generosity and kindness in the past. Anything that gives rise to mindfulness uh, combined with joy and energy, which come up very soon afterwards, uh, is to my mind a satisfactory, sufficient as an awakening factor of mindfulness. But in the suttas, the main way of satipatthana is always mindfulness of breathing. So come back to the mindfulness of breathing. Use these other ones to awaken some joy and happiness in your meditation and life. But come back to mindfulness of breathing as the main vehicle for the actual practice of meditation. Because it is found so many times in the suttas. So you develop the awakening factor of mindfulness in this way. Yeah? Then comes the investigation of principles, Dhammavichaya Sambhujanga. And uh, this is explained as understanding the good and bad qualities of the mind, the dark and the bright qualities of the mind, the blameworthy and blameless qualities of mind. Yeah, These things, this is how it is explained in the suttas. And it's very closely related to what we do also in Satipatthana, in the last part of Satipatthana, where we contemplate the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. That's essentially what we're doing at that time. We're understanding what the hindrances are, how they arise, how they are abandoned, how they come to be abandoned in the future. And a similar thing with the Bojangas. Yeah? We're understanding what these things are and then how they are developed, etc. This is called investigation of principles. Because this is what allows you to move forward in your meditation by abandoning the problems. And very often it's quite straightforward. Yeah, it's not, it may sound very fancy when it's put in this way, but it's simple things like just being attached to your body. That's really what it comes down to. So a little bit more reflection on why the body is not so wonderful. Uh, reflection on the world not being as interesting as we think it is. The world actually isn't that exciting. Yeah, After a while you've seen it all, you've done it all, uh, and it's just not, there's not that much more of interest. There's something far more interesting going, with, going on within her, uh, as long as we can access those uh, beautiful qualities within her. Uh. So all of the simple things like that is really what it is. Sometimes when you... 
phrase it or look at it in the suit as it can seem complicated but keep it simple uh, don't intellectualize it too much uh, because it just uh, detracts from the straightforward meaning of these things uh. so investigation of principles uh, yeah knowing what is good what is bad overcoming doubt this is almost like the opposite of overcoming doubt and as you do that uh, as you overcome the defilements as you using the mindfulness on the dhammanusati or whatever it is then the energy and the happiness start to arise in the mind it's just a natural consequence of overcoming defilements it's a natural consequence of understanding why this path is such a so wonderful the energy comes the virya and energy is the natural energy of the mind yeah it is not the exertion of yourself I got to practice I got to do it I got to exert willpower this is the energy that is naturally inside of you whereby you just feel energized wow you feel really awake and you feel power start to feel very powerful deep samadhi leads to this incredible sense of power yeah it's like you feel like superman and superwoman when you get this kind of energy states nothing can stop you anymore so you and the higher your samadhi the more super you become a super person uttari manusadama you go beyond the human state even these are what these things are called uttari manusadama the states beyond the human realm so to speak yeah and these are of course especially the uh, jhanas that sort of thing yeah so the energy comes yeah and this at this point all of this becomes it's super duper wonderful when these things start to happen yeah you get so you have to be a little bit careful not to get too excited because uh, it's it just you know you get carried away by some of these things uh, but after a while you learn just to hang out with it and just enjoy it uh, you know that excitement is just being stupid so you don't do that uh, and with that energy comes the joy and happiness we talked about pamoja before pamoja is not mentioned here because it's kind of included within these principles uh, and then the rapture comes yeah that piti we talked about the other day one thing leading to another one building up overlapping with each other to a large extent but also leading onwards uh, the, the deeper kind of more powerful joy which encompasses your whole being you kind of feel you're vibrating or whatever it is uh, and you carry on watching the breath all the time watching the breath all the time anapanasati in the background uh, tranquilizing this becoming even more peaceful uh, a more deeper state of happiness uh, yeah that draws you in uh, you can't you don't want to watch anything else in the whole world and that is why samadhi arises uh, immersion it is called here and then you practice that samadhi to the highest point uh, that is the upeka the equanimity the ability to just look on without any kind of an involvement and because you have this ability to look on without involvement uh, that is where you have the potential for really profound insights uh, this is these are the seven factors of awakening here yeah? yeah beautiful quality marvelous qualities uh, and this is what is awaiting you on the path if you practice in the right way here so um what about this last part relying on seclusion fading away cessation and ripening and letting go huh? and this is uh, not at all obvious what that means uh, but again if you know the suit as well and you know how these things are used elsewhere for example if you go to the anapanasati sutta you find a similar kind of uh, thing at the end and there it is more obvious what is going on uh, 
So relying on seclusion, I think, is pretty obvious. Yeah, you go to a peaceful place and you seclude yourself first of all physically. You go to a retreat center. You go to Newbury when that retreat center is ready, or somewhere else. And by just withdrawing from society, withdrawing from the ordinary hustle and bustle of life, and withdrawing from some of the sensory impressions and sensuality, your mind clears up automatically because of that. Yeah, the Buddha went off to the forest. The Buddha renounced his ordinary life and found seclusion. Seclusion being such an important idea in Buddhism. So you seclude yourself physically, and then that leads to mental seclusion. Kaya viveka leading to chitta viveka, one after the other. And then it says here it relies on fading away. What does that mean? And what that means is that as you progress in meditation, things fade away in your meditation. Yeah, the more things fade away, the more ability you have to see clearly what is going on. Your insight, your vipassana, uh, and your panya depend on the fading away of things in meditation. The world becomes distant. The senses are becoming less, uh, sometimes disappearing altogether. Everything becomes more distant to you. Your thought processes are gradually becoming less and less until it, they almost stop completely. Defilements are being reduced, they are fading away. But particularly the six senses are fading away. This is the most important thing. This is kind of what I think is probably meant to fading away, weakening and weakening and weakening. And this is what enables both the samadhi to become deeper and also the insight process from happening. They've been saying all along that samatha and vipassana are two sides of the same coin. They go together, they cannot be distinguished. And vipassana. Meditation is just one particular way of of using meditation. It doesn't actually mean you're doing just vipassana. It's impossible to, to do just vipassana. Samatha always comes with, with it. Uh, it's just a nice way of, I guess, marketing it or something like that. Uh, so things fade away, become less and less and less. Uh, mind becomes more and more still. Reality becomes simpler and simpler. Uh, yeah, This is what tranquility means. Less and less going on. Uh, and until eventually things start to cease completely here yeah. and that is when your insight and your ability to understand things becomes very powerful yeah, yeah things are completely gone again the frog coming out the tadpole coming out of the water as a frog and you can see the nature of things so this whole process relies on this gradual fading away the gradual ending of things and it's mar- marvelous, yeah. It's a wonderful process. Uh, this is the whole point. This is incredibly enjoyable. Uh, it may sound kind of scary, but this is the most enjoyable thing that can happen. Uh, and that is exactly why it gives insight, yeah, because it's so enjoyable. You understand dukkha and sukkha when you do this. Uh, you really see it directly. You cannot avoid understanding it. People ask often, "How do you do vipassana?" A lot of the time, this vipassana just happens. You cannot avoid seeing what is going on. Uh, but make it a bit conscious. That's kind of the idea. Because if you make it a bit conscious, instead of just knowing, yeah, this is happiness, you think, well, what's going on there? Why was that happiness? And you kind of reflect on it a bit so that you have a bit, get a bit more clarity about what's going on. Okay, the body wasn't there. Wow, the body is dukkha, cheapest creepers. And you, okay, put the body to one side. 
senses, yeah, so much disturbance in the mind, literally, I'm not sure if I'm interested in these senses anymore. That's a very useful insight. Once you start to see the senses aren't that interesting because it's very hard to actually give up the senses. Uh, yeah, we live in the sensory world. We swim in the sensory pond. Everything is sensual input all day long, pretty much, except when you close your eyes and you kind of try to let go of that world a little bit. But even still, the senses usually impinge on you to some extent. Very hard to give them up completely. So the ability to see that the senses are painful. Uh, we talked about the flayed cow the other day yeah, with, with the senses and you start to understand why that is the case. Uh, why it is a bit like a flayed cow, all of this stuff always irritating you, never giving you peace because there's so much going on in that sensory world. Uh, so if you can make it a bit conscious, not just knowing immediately, yeah, this is happiness, you know that, but why exactly is it happiness? Uh, reflect a little bit. Uh, that's why I usually recommend people at the end of the meditation to reflect back. Uh, what happened? Uh, why am I feeling peaceful? Uh, what is going on here? And then you start to see, this is exactly what it is about, you start to see what it is that you did. I let go of the senses, that's why it was peaceful. I was able to still the will a little bit. How was I able to still the will? Actually just by hanging out and doing nothing and enjoying the peace. You start to understand how the process works. So this is, so be, be a little bit conscious about things. Spend a bit of time reflecting on what is happening, how the meditation works. Looking at this process of gradual fading away, ending in cessation as you do these things. And all of you will have a little bit of idea of these things. Yeah, That's why you enjoy meditation. Otherwise you wouldn't enjoy it. Or maybe, maybe you don't enjoy meditation, I'm not sure. Huh? But I'm assuming you enjoy meditation just a little bit, right? And uh, that is why you enjoy it, because it is peaceful. Something is ending, something is disappearing. Yeah? So, th this is the meaning of these things. And you, you see this more clearly in the Anapanasati Sutta, where this is uh, uh, talked about. Uh, and then it ripens in letting go. Yeah, Letting go is the final step in these things. Uh, when you see things ceasing, yeah, and you see this enough times, and you understand that it is all dukkha, problematic, or whatever, then it comes a point when you patinisaga. Patinisaga is bing, let it go. You have no craving for these things anymore. It ripens in the ending of craving. That's really what this means. Letting go is the opposite of craving. So you kind of just, everything just comes to an end. And this is why these are called seven factors of awakening. It is said in the suttas that they are called this because they lead to awakening here. Maybe you think that's obvious, but some people think, no, they're called seven factors of awakening because that's what you experience during awakening here. Actually, no, that's not what the Buddha says. It says it leads to awakening. That's why they're called the seven factors of awakening here. So you build them up and then you eventually you come there here. This is called the power of development, the bhavana bala. These are the two powers. So, so power of reflection, power of development. Know when to do which one. Don't go into the power of development too quickly. Make sure you are ready. Try to understand these defilements, why they are bad. Understand some of the strategies to overcome them. 
Be wise about this. Don't use too much willpower. Willpower leads to all kinds of problems. Wisdom leads to zero problems and lots of happiness. So do these things in the right sequence and the right way, and then you're going to go a long way on this path. It's always, um, I think, yeah, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? You, this Buddhism business and. Um, <laughs> It's tricky because we read the suttas in translation. Often we don't really know exactly what the Pali is saying. It's tricky because we don't read enough suttas. We have a narrow view. We know the word restraint and we think, okay, restraint. It's tricky because sometimes we listen to suttas from teachers who are not necessarily all that well versed in the suttas. It's very hard to know. Am I well versed? Well, I think so, but am I? Well, it's up to you to decide. Hard for you to know, right? Maybe I'm telling you all kind of weird stuff that I shouldn't be saying. Very hard for you to know. So what you have to do is you have to listen over time. Compare what I say to what the suttas say. Compare what it seems like to what other people say. And then kind of gradually get a feeling for what I, whether what I'm saying makes sense or not. But it's very difficult for you to judge me as it, you know, when I teach these things. So don't, don't be too quick in taking on board what I say here. Yeah, don't just take it on board like that, because that's silly. Yeah? That's dangerous. Uh, gradually allow it to develop and understand these things. Uh, and uh, it may sound really nice what I say, but tomorrow comes another monk. He says the exact opposite. He sounds just as convincing, but he's saying negative A when I said A. So who is right? Uh, this is often the problem. Uh, so, you, so you need to kind of gradually come to a feeling for, for who understands these teachings uh, uh, in the right way and by reading yourself, by listening and all of these kind of things. Uh, but be very careful with um, accepting kind of, um, uh, you know, truths that have come down by famous teachers and thinking that they must be absolute truth because a particular teacher is very famous. And, uh, you know, there are many famous meditation teachers in the world and kind of some of the most famous are people like uh, Gwenka and Mahasi Sayadaw, there are lots of meditation teachers around the world. And they have done a lot of benefit for Buddhism, a lot of benefit for lots of people around the world. And it's marvelous what they have done. But that doesn't mean that everything they do is absolutely correct. Gwenka was first and foremost a businessman. That was kind of his main thing. And then the secondary and later in life he became more of a meditation teacher. And he received most of his teacher, teaching from Burmese teachers like Ubakin and, and other teachers in, in Burma. But uh, you know, when you but be careful when you listen to those teachings by some of these teachers because sometimes they don't get it quite right. Yeah, and even someone like Gwenka, just because he's famous, doesn't mean that he got everything right on this path. And I think there are areas where the technique that he has can be improved upon. Or maybe Gwenka got it right, but maybe his teachers get it wrong, right? And it's a very fixed kind of format. It's very limited to one sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, and that can lead to problems. And that leads to the kind of thing that I think is can be dangerous. The overemphasis on watching pain and these kind of things is uh, the hallmarks of uh, the Goenka tradition. Uh, so don't. So be uh, be kind of circumspect. Yeah, be kind of wise about these things. Uh, don't be too quick to say yay or too quick to say nay. And um, then gradually you start to uncover these things. It's difficult. I must admit, sometimes I feel a bit. 
I feel a bit of compassion for lay people. I think, jeepers, it's hard to be a lay person. I'm a professional. I do these things all the time. And sometimes it's hard enough for me to make head and tails of these suttas, yeah? Let alone for if you are a lay person, then you have a full life in other areas. So um, there comes a point, of course, when you start to feel reasonably confident with a particular teacher. And then when you have that reasonable confidence, okay, then you carry on and you're okay. Yeah. But uh, it's good to be a little bit kind of... Uh, a little bit uh, smart, yeah. <laughs> a little bit intelligent. It's good to be intelligent, and good not to be too quick to to go with one way or another one. Anyway, I'm just babbling on now, I suppose. Uh, so let's uh, stop there. So uh, please have a nice lunch together and continue enjoying yourself. And we'll see you back again at two o'clock this afternoon.